welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. In this podcast, I look beyond the pencils, the brushes, the sketchbooks, and the iPads to discover what it means to be an artist. Join me as I speak to other creatives about their journey, as well as reflecting on my own artwork and experiences. Episode 87, Illustration, Urban Sketching, and Kickstarting Your Creative Obsession with Christina Wald. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I hope you're enjoying fall. <laughs> For those of us who have fall in that hemisphere, I am uh, I just love this time of year. I just wanted to mention it because it's, uh, you know, the leaves are past it at this point, but I just love the colors and uh, just seeing this transition into um, into winter. We're having quite a, a long fall here. It's still quite warm. I don't know when it will cool down at this point. Even the long-range forecast looks like it's going to be quite warm. But it's a a chance to get out and enjoy and walk around and, you know, seeing all the mushrooms coming up in the last month has been incredible. And I've seen a few of you making mushroom ink and uh, just taking photos and being inspired to draw and paint mushrooms. I think that's incredible. And the other thing about this time of year is obviously Inktober. And I know that many of you have taken on Inktober, Birdtober, Inverttober. There are a whole bunch of challenges for the month of October, regardless of which one that you've taken on. If you have taken on a challenge and you got past day one, you're good. Uh, I don't want people to be stressed if they stopped Inktober after day three or day 10 or day 20. The fact that you took it on, you explored this, means that you have pushed yourself a little bit and maybe you can take on another challenge in the future and maybe approach it differently. But I am so proud of you for taking on these kinds of challenges to try and push you outside your comfort zone. I did Inktober for three years. I may do it again in future. I didn't do it this year. I've got other things that I was working on, so I wanted to be kind of sensitive to my time or my spare time because art is my spare time and so is the podcast. So I only have so many hours in a day and on the weekend. And uh, so I just didn't want to take it on this year, but I'm just uh, so inspired by all of your work, following you all on Instagram and your various blogs. I, I just think it's it's wonderful. And for those of you who haven't taken it on that may feel inspired for next year, take a look and see what people are doing and how they're doing it. And whether it's Inktober or something else, it is an opportunity for you to challenge yourself and to um, to kind of push your art a little bit further and allows you to focus a little bit and maybe kind of reflecting on why you're doing what you're doing. And I think there's big value in that. And this kind of leads to my next point, and that is kind of thinking about what you want to do for 2023. So I've been already putting some thought into that. It comes to this time of year where I think every podcast between now and the end of the year, I'm going to talk about planning for 2023. I didn't achieve everything I wanted to in 2022. And There are various reasons for that, and I'm okay with it, but I do always look to the next year thinking it's it's opportunities, right? And I'm not going to get to them all, but it is an opportunity for me to kind of push things a little bit further, explore new mediums, explore different ways of, of getting my art out and expanding the podcast and doing exciting things on here and interacting with these new fantastic artists. So right now I'm just kind of reflecting on the previous year. I'm thinking about what I've accomplished this year. Like, what did you accomplish this year? What was what was a planned accomplishment and what was a surprise accomplishment? And I think that reflection is really important. Are, are there goals that you had for this year, but you never put a plan in place to get to them? I know so many of us, including me, do that. You know, you have these fantastic goals, but then you never 
put the plan in place, those, those steps to get to that goal and thinking about how I would do it differently for 2023. You know, the other thing I'm thinking about too is not just where I'm going to be next year, but where, where do I want to be in three years, in five years? And I want to reach for the stars. I want to push. I want to be doing incredible things that I haven't even thought about. So I want to be open to those opportunities as well. And the other thing I'm thinking about is, are, are there gaps in what I know? Are, are there gaps in what I need to learn? Is there Are there areas within art, within business, within marketing, within all of this that I need to kind of fill those gaps to be able to move my creative practice forward? And so that's something I'm thinking about, not just the projects themselves. So as I said, I'm going to be spending some time in the next few weeks. I'm going to be sharing... Uh, I think I'm going to probably do a few of these through my newsletter, and I haven't sent one out for a while, but I think I'm going to kind of piggyback on top of that and talk about this. And I'll be mentioning it in the podcasts as we continue into uh, to the end of this year about things that I'm doing to try and kind of move all of this forward. So I hope that you're thinking about 2023. I'm sure that this year you maybe felt that you could have done better. Maybe you had tremendous success and you want to build on that. And all of it is okay. It's just a matter of being honest with yourself, reflecting on what you've done, and, and kind of just have a list of wins. I heard this on the Art Juice podcast about, uh, you know, this idea of just marking your wins. We, we tend not to do that as, as much, right? We tend not to have this list of wins. And uh, it's important to note those because some of those are unintentional, unplanned, and some of them are more significant than we think. And so it's, you know, celebrate yourself, celebrate this year, and uh, let's let's hit 2023 running. So the other thing that I did is I'm trying this service called SpeakPipe. And SpeakPipe is a way for basically you to send me an audio message. And I'm trying this service out, so I will uh, provide a link to it. It is under the contact form for drawinginspiration.fm. So if you go to the website for this podcast and you go to the contact page and you look below the form, you'll see it there. And you can use it from your desktop. It works really well from an iPhone or an Android phone. All you do is you hit record, record under 90 seconds. It's limited to 90 seconds with the free service. I'm going to try this out. And then record your message. You can listen to it. You can add your name. It could be anonymous. But it's a way for you to send me an audio message. If you just want to say something, if you want to ask a question, then uh, let me know that you are asking a question. Then it's okay for me to include either your first name or your full name in a future podcast, but I want to maybe uh, have this opportunity to address some questions and some uh, feedback on the show. So if you don't want to type your messages, you can try this new SpeakPipe service and we'll see where it takes us. So as a matter of art updates, I uh, I did a few things since the last podcast. I worked on an eagle in ink, so that was kind of fun. I really enjoy going straight to ink. I feel like I need to do more of that. I need to get my fountain pen out. I've been using my Micron pens, but I want to get that fountain pen out again with the Fude nib. That's the nib that's kind of bent at the very tip, and so it provides this opportunity for really wide lines as well as really fine, depending on how you hold your pen. And then the other piece that I was working on was a red-eyed tree frog. So this red-eyed tree frog I did as a pencil sketch, and then I brought in some watercolor, and it was kind of fun because it was this these bold colors, right, uh, with the reds and the greens. And um, I was using the uh, Daniel Smith colors that I have loaded in my Art Toolkit palette. And it's a reminder as well, with Art Toolkit, there is an existing 10% discount code. So don't forget to use that. That expires December 31st of this year. So if you're interested in something from our toolkit for yourself, or maybe you're thinking about a gift for somebody for the holidays, keep that in mind. 10% off your order. 
The code is MHDRAWS10. That's MHDRAWS10. And that, uh, that'll give you 10% off your order. And that's valid until December 31st of this year, 2022. So I did a giveaway uh, since the last podcast. I gave away some uh, greeting cards. So this is in cooperation with Etcher. And once again, Etcher have a code available, and that is Mike H, M-I-K-E-H, for 10% off your next order. And what we did is we gave away a package of greeting cards, and so that was given away to one lucky winner. So the other thing I did is I gave away three original greeting cards. I'm almost finished my third one, and so what I'm doing is I'm sending out these original greeting cards, and along with my card, I'm sending a blank so that individuals can use my original greeting card and they can write whatever they want inside, but they can also create their own. It'll be two envelopes, two greeting cards, and uh, I'm excited to send one of these out. One of them is going as far as Peru. So thank you for all the listeners around the world. I was I was surprised by, uh, by hearing from someone in Peru, but uh, I know that many of you are listening to this show worldwide. I know many listeners in Australia, New Zealand, and uh, in Thailand and uh, Norway. So I appreciate all of you and listening to this podcast. So the last thing I did uh, as a matter of drawing was uh, doing some work in Procreate. I got a new kind of a silicone sleeve for my Apple Pencil and I wanted to try it out. So I thought I would draw a human. (laughs) I rarely draw humans. And uh, so I decided to draw this dancer uh, in this kind of dynamic pose. I had found it; it was a a free-for-use kind of reference image. And I really liked it because of the, uh, the, the this woman with the beautiful dress, in a with a black background, and I just I felt compelled to draw it, so I did. It was only about an hour, but uh, it was a really kind of fun experience. I, I really miss drawing on the iPad, and I just only have so many hours in the day. But I'm going to do more, I think, on the iPad. I think it's fun to be able to have that time lapse captured, and maybe I'll even do a, a live draw around it. So that's it for updates this week. I hope you are doing well, and I hope you enjoy this interview. This was so much fun. Let's check it out. My guest this week has been an illustrator for over 30 years, working with properties such as Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Sesame Street, and Babylon 5. Even though she has illustrated over 60 children's books, she has found time to explore the world of urban sketching as a way to connect with other artists and practice her skills. She recently launched a Kickstarter for a new book called My Sketching Obsession, where she is both illustrator and author. We will explore her career, how she manages analog versus digital work, and other lessons along the way. Her homework may have you telling a story. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Christina Wald. Hi, Christina. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm uh, so pleased that we found each other. And it was a weird kind of situation where you followed me on Instagram and then I went and looked at your profile and I'm like, oh my, this person is amazing with all the illustration work and and a recent Kickstarter. And and I was like, oh, I got, I'm going to have to reach out to her and see if she wants to come on the show. And then you sent me a, a separate message asking if you can uh, come on to the show to talk about your Kickstarter because you, I guess, had heard it from friends. And it was like this weird, like, I was going to talk to you. <laughs> oh, that is so amazing. Synchronicity. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm so happy that you connected and we connected and, and that you're here because, uh, you know, I was part of my research. I was looking at stuff that you've worked on, some of the franchises that you've done work for, the licensing uh, that you've done and, you know, the urban sketching and everything. And it's like, you, you are my people. So it was it was just I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for, oh, well, for coming Thank on. you. 
I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so we're going to get to all of it uh, if we can, <laughs> and uh, this is going to be fun. But <laughs> I want to understand, have you always been a creative? Like when you were a kid, did it start then and or did it start later? You know, it's kind of an interesting question because I always tell people, I mean, I always love to draw and paint, but, and this is probably a, a, say, a way to tell people to get better, you know, and keep practicing. My first memory in art class uh, specifically was I, we had to do portraits of each other. It's like the fifth grade. And I did a portrait of my best friend and she actually wrote me a note and said she would never talk to me again unless I destroyed the drawing because she hated it so much. And she had bullet points on why she didn't like it. Now I had drawn her head on a column in a museum and she did not like that. So um, (laughs) that kind of helped me for a career in illustration because I got bad feedback early. (laughs) But I probably got very serious about drawing when I became a like junior high and high school because I got really into comics. Um, mm-hmm. I started reading ElfQuest um, in like, and this this ages me. Um, I, <laughs> I was getting her original issues in the early 80s. I was probably, you know, the ones you had to wait. It was like the first run of 20 issues. And so I heavily got into ElfQuest and comics. My mom used to go to garage sales and get comics all the time and so we had stacks of old like dc like the ones with the witching hour with the three witches and you know just a bunch of different types of comics and so we just had them around all the time and read them a lot and that got me really into drawing and sketching and um wanting to tell stories i don't i wasn't probably that good at first but i did like (laughs) reading and drawing a lot it's so funny when you're talking about this because I feel like we're close to the same vintage. And so, yes, <laughs> I remember flipping through a lot of those and uh, Turok, uh, Son of Stone, I think it was. It was a great comic. Yeah, and... yeah, there was a lot of yeah stuff yeah. around. Well, it was the uh, black and white comic revolution, sort of that was happening in the late '70s, early '80s. Like all these different people. Colleen Duran got her start. Um, Cerebus, who you know, that's in Canada. All these different artists got their start kind of around that time. And around that time, I started going to my first conventions and that kind of thing and drawing all the time. Oh, that's that's so cool. So mm-hmm. you, you took this on through junior high and high school. Did you feel... Yes. Did you do anything during that point or did you get to the end point of that and say, I've got to do something with my, you know, in drawing and creating? I was interested in probably the end of high school. I, I was kind of torn there was a couple different things I was interested in. I mean, as a big fan of, you know, Cosmos and Carl Sagan, I wanted to be an astronomer. Um, Of course, I found out that was mostly math. And so that probably would have not been a good career choice for me. I mean, I still love reading about science and I get to illustrate a lot of scientific stuff, not so much space stuff, but a lot of biological stuff for, you know, kids books and that sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. You know, and I also was kind of interested. I, I was a huge drama nerd as a high school student, and so I was interested in maybe doing radio or something like that. And it was time times were a little bit different back then, as far as figuring out. And, and you probably relate to this a little bit too. I mean, I went I went to college. I went to University of Cincinnati, and you know, I picked my major actually as I was typing on a typewriter. My <laughs> my um you know, my application back then you probably typed the stuff on a typewriter and it like said, pick one. Mm-hmm. And I, we had gone down and actually visited CCM at uh, UC, which is 
which was like for radio and doing broadcasting. And then I changed my major to graphic design as I was typing the application. And then, you know, I got in and then I actually changed my major my freshman year because my mom and I went down and checked out the senior show that they had at University of Cincinnati. And they had all the stuff from the industrial designers. They have a huge industrial design program at UC. And we were just, we had never heard of it before and we were flabbergasted. And for those that don't know what industrial design is, that's kind of like graphic design, but in 3D. It's product design, car design, vehicle design, anything that you have that's a product has been designed by a product or industrial designer. And so my freshman year, I switched majors into industrial design. And I think that was actually a really good background I actually and and I could go into a whole discussion on my feelings of training for illustrators because there's a lot of schools that have specific illustration majors and I actually think and and I I could go on tangents like this for a long time (laughs) because I, I feel like the best way to be an illustrator is to have a background with a lot of different interests and stuff because we have to do so much stuff that we're kind of expected to become I don't want to say an expert in, but a lot of times when you get to draw something, you have to figure out what that looks like and make it accurate. And so being able to research, so my product design background actually really helped a lot for a lot of my children's book projects because of the sketching aspect. The thing about industrial design is you sketch a lot, like you'd have to do a hundred sketches of a product, you know, doing you know, concept designs and stuff. And so that was good exercise for storytelling later. You know, and I think that that is is something, you know, a lot of people kind of get, and, and maybe this is why I'm attracted to sketching too, a lot of people kind of get hung up at first on finely rendered pieces. And there is a lot of that in illustration, but the first thing in any art is the idea and composition and coming up. I mean, the thing you're paid for the most is not just making pretty pictures. It's what do I bring conceptually to the project? Your vision is what they're paying for the most. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people can do stuff that kind of looks the same, but the most important is aspect is you and your storytelling ability and your ability to craft images and stories and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's, I mean, absolutely right. And I think one of the, the points you highlighted there is this, you know, when you are doing illustration, I look at all your work, it's like, you have to be able to describe all the worlds. Like you, you, you have to be able to whether it's it's an otter diving underwater to grab its meal, or if it's a, a bison rolling in, in in a field out with its young ones around it. I mean, you have to be able to, and whether it's a train that has a face on it, right? Like you have to be yeah. able to to tell all these stories. And having worked in mechanical engineering and having known many industrial designers, I can appreciate that those skills, that sketching, the ability to be able to to give depth to those basic images um, and being able to understand where the light falls and, and where the highlights should be in rendering something in a 3D kind of perspective is, you know, a big tool to have in your toolbox as a matter of an illustrator. For you to have moved from there to here is is pretty incredible. So you finished your degree in industrial design did you move into industrial design like at what point did you what happened (laughs) to you (laughs) that caused you to to take this other route well i i always wanted to do illustration uc didn't offer an illustration major and you know i'm kind of on the fence on whether an illustration major is necessarily useful again i think 
illustration uh, coupled with design of some kind, whether it's graphic or industrial or something like that, I think is probably much more useful career-wise than something where you're just exclusively doing illustration. Because these days, surviving in this ever-changing atmosphere, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting and, and teaching college now really kind of hits at home too, is that ever since I became an illustrator, people have been saying it's the end of illustration. They're not going to use illustrators anymore because of photography or because of this or that or AI or whatever. And that's simply not true because that's not, if you look at it just as pretty pictures, as I said, then you might be afraid that illustration's going away, but that's not necessarily what it is. And so I wanted to be a comic book artist, actually, when I got out of school, but I was way too slow. It takes, I could, I can do comics now, but when I was graduating from college, that's a huge amount of artwork to do. And so I started going to conventions and I started getting work for role-playing games because that required a lot less art. And so I kind of was training when I was working on a lot of those projects for West End Games and Star Wars and Dragon Magazine and that sort of thing. Those were, you know, some of my first steps as a career. So it was really interesting working on those types of licensed products like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and, you know, Dune and that sort of thing. Because for one thing, a lot of that stuff was pre-internet. And so you didn't have sort of I'm not sure I'd want to work on some of those licenses now just because of the way that's the people interact with the people that work on those licenses, if that makes sense. It's sort of become a different thing. I mean, back then we were in our house. You remember it. You called people on the phone. People sent me faxes. I've had people ask about some of the Star Wars stuff I did. And they said, you know, what did they send you to draw from? And I said, it's hard to describe just how bad the fax was that I got on our fax machine that you know had, had lines through it and it was like a plan view and it was you know you had to kind of interpret what this thing was because it was so badly reproduced and that was just how we got everything or they fed us a bunch of bad copies of stuff you know not because they wanted to send bad copies but because that's all we had was xerox machines and color copies were extremely expensive and it's, it's just kind of funny but it was kind of a fun time to work on stuff too because nobody cared you know yeah i can imagine i've got to include a little star wars joke but i can imagine that these faxes coming through and looking like something that you found on hoth that's been buried there for like exactly. five years in some kind of time capsule that you know they stole the plans from the from the empire or whatever the case right like it like... kind of was like that <laughs> well at the time when i was working with west end games they did not expect to make more movies they'd made uh, return of the jedi and then the only person doing star wars stuff was the role-playing game and it was sort of this weird time period before they did the prequels and so no one was really paying that much attention to it. I mean, there's people that love it that still play the game. But it, it's just interesting to see, you know, what ha what has happened now is totally not predicted. Did you actively go after this work or did this, was this something you were doing in your spare time that just grew into what you became? I started going to Gen Con and showing my portfolio around. And so I started getting clients from there. I started doing some work for, I did work for a bunch of different game companies and game company magazines. I did work for FASA and for... Um, Wizards of the Coast, when they were first starting, you know, I did some battle tech stuff. And because I had done so much tech drawing for school, um, you know, I was good at drawing tech stuff. And it kind of, you know, kind of snowballed from there. And 
Right. So I worked pretty, I mean, I've always done freelance industrial design too. Uh, it doesn't get as much because a lot of times when you're working on industrial design type stuff, it's confidential and you're not allowed to show much of it. And so I've always had that in my practice as well. When I graduated from high school, I got married and my husband worked at Kenner Toys. He's a toy designer engineer. So he's a mechanical engineer as well. So we stayed in town. So I kind of started freelancing and working on my art career then. And so I, I, that made it easy to start working remotely. And that's when I, so I was kind of cutting my chops working on a lot of those different projects. I mean, I don't know how many game books that I was in, and most of them ended up being licensed, like Babylon 5 and Dune and, you know, all that stuff. But it was really fun working in all those. I mean, probably the funnest, I got to do some uh, Lord of the Rings cards that were, it was before the movies. So, I mean, the Bakshi movie was out, but it was kind of fun getting to work on those before everybody had seen all the Steve Jackson st- or the, the Peter, Peter Jackson, Jackson stuff. Yeah. Well, you're talking about games, so my brain said Steve Jackson. He <laughs> n- not Gerps, but <laughs> <laughs> but Peter Jackson stuff. <laughs> so I just want to go back to this because you're coming from industrial design. You know, being a mm-hmm. being able to work on things like the Death Star, an X-wing, a Tie Fighter, all these mm-hmm. kind of wonderful craft must be really similar to the kind of the work that you were doing before, right? Like it's yes, not a yes. it's not uh-huh. a big leap. Was it harder to move to drawing uh, dragons and characters and uh, hobbits? Like, was it hard to move into these rounded, odd shapes versus working, you know, with uh, more defined lines? I don't know if it was hard. All of this type of work is just, you know, it just takes practice and just learning how to properly reference and get, and, and, and just really... Even now, you know, I always am, you know, trying to improve my practice by, you know, sketching people and sketching from life. And like tomorrow we're going to the zoo to sketch. I go to the zoo every month to sketch from animals and stuff. And I think that there's something that improves your drawing skill by doing that all times. Um, it, it didn't feel like it was that difficult of a transition to do, you know, people and hobbits and landscapes. I think that I'm always kind of refri- refining my approach of how I do things. But again, it all comes back down really to concept. I mean, I always tell people, and, and you know, we're going to talk about urban sketching later, but everything kind of, your approach to drawing it is all kind of the same. You, you look at sort of the relationships and how things interact with each other, and that's almost more important than whether you're drawing a bus or a rabbit or, you know, it, it there's there's a lot of and I think a lot of people end up getting very I don't want to say specialized but they kind of think that there's a much bigger distinction than there actually is I mean it's wonderful for you to to hear you say that because you're so accomplished so successful and and to know that back then and even today that it's just practice so for the artist listening right now who's maybe struggling at this point it is just picking up that piece of paper and that pen or that tablet and that pencil or the brush and just doing the thing and it could be a few minutes uh, a few minutes tomorrow the the final work that we're seeing is not a switch that's turned on it is just no. effort it is just time it, it really it is time and i think that if you are really struggling, if you're just breaking it, and it is really hard when you're first getting into it, because it's hard to understand just how much work you'll be creating as a 
as a illustration professional. I mean, it's it's not like you're going to. And I've talked to people that are breaking in about this before because it is. It's not like you're going to get that one job and it's going to make you famous and you'll never have to do anything else. You are going to be, it's almost more like bricklaying than anything else. It's a craft that you are working on every day, usually more than nine to five. It depends how much work you have, but it really is something where you are putting, you know, eight or 12 or 14 hours a day in, depending on how loaded you are. I actually, and we'll get into this later, I actually sketch to kind of relax and bring my joy back into sketching because even though I love what I do and the illustration projects I get to do are really fun, when you're working on something that's very tightly rendered most of the time, there's nothing more fun than just going outside and just doodling and just doing whatever you want, not really caring that much about what it looks like and just having fun. And that's where I experiment and try different things I'm always trying to experiment with different materials, experiment with different techniques, and it makes it more fun for me. And it keeps me from getting burnt out. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I'd get burnt out if all I did was my main day-to-day day job. Right. And I've I've heard that before. I've had a guest on here who works um, on Star Trek Discovery. He's done, mm-hmm. you know, it and that as a storyboard artist. And he always does a... a a warm up and a cool down, and that's a sketch you can show because the rest of it's protected by yeah. NDAs, right? Yeah, exactly. You're not allowed to show anything, <laughs> right? You know, it, it is exercise, and if you can weave that in and just accept that it doesn't have to be a polished piece, that it's a chance to just play and and work with that, then I think we should all be doing that. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, like you mentioned, these incredible licenses that you've worked with, or these licensed properties that you worked with. What? And I don't want you to single out like your favorite, but are there a couple of memorable experiences through that, uh, whether it's based on the content or the the relationship that you still look back and, and think fondly of as a matter of having influenced your, your style and your career? You know, most of the stuff that I worked on when I was, because I would call like the 90s was sort of when I was in that, that's when I was doing most of that type of licensed stuff with games and role-playing games and stuff. And I had a lot of really great experiences. I A lot of the projects were different enough from each other that, and I liked all the licenses that I worked on. So it was really fun to play in the different playgrounds and, and try the different characters and that sort of thing. And so I, I found it very, you know, mostly very affirming. And it was, you know, I, I never get bored because I have so many things that are really interesting that I get to work on. And really i the reason i you know transitioned out of doing that type of work was sort of at the end of the 90s a lot of people were making different types of card games and stuff and it wasn't stuff kind of a lot of games kind of became right now they're booming but everything was kind of becoming less popular i'm not sure if it was because it just as a pursuit board gaming and that sort of thing just had lost popularity and and perhaps card games a little bit too. Several of the companies that I worked for went under. And so I decided to refocus my portfolio because of, of the change. And so I actually worked doing giftware for a couple of years and worked doing some illustrations for giftware companies. And I also worked at an agency for a couple of years while I refocused my portfolio. And so how I got into children's books was probably very different from the way a lot of people do it because I 
I started doing paintings of animals for one of the giftware companies I was working for. They, you know, those flags people hang on their houses. Yes. Mm -hmm. I started painting flags for this company that was in Cincinnati. It was in Milford, Ohio, and they, you know, commissioned me to paint a bunch of them. And so I put them up on my website you know, early website. It was it was probably the early 2000s. And I started getting calls from Scholastic and uh, Penguin to do books and artwork. I started doing work for Scholastic News and it was a lot of complex illustrations where they were called see-through issues. And I'll have to give you a sample of this because it was printed on newsprint. And on one side, it sort of sewed an animal scene and on the other side, there was stuff that was hidden unless you held it up to the light. So it was printed on oh, both sides. And one cool. side showed, like, the little animals hibernating underground. and But on the other side, it was dirt. And the kids could hold it up and find all the stuff. And it was really cute. <laughs> That's cool. And so I did a, a bunch of stuff for that. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. And I started doing more and more animal books. And... It kind of has been a little bit nonstop since then. I think this leads it to, and I've, I've heard you say this in another interview, but it's what you show, you know, whether it's on your website or your Instagram, you know, it's, in some ways people look at that as a portfolio now, even though, you know, the website is probably a better way to curate that. That's kind of, the stuff you show is the stuff you want to do. Like you shouldn't be showing stuff yes. you don't want to do, right? <laughs> yes. And I have some great anecdotes about that too. Oh, do you? <laughs> yes. I, I always tell my, because I mean, I always tell my students what, that you should always, and we have this, there's a group that meets in Cincinnati. It was actually started by Chris Payne and David Michael Beck and John Maggard, a bunch of local Cincinnati illustrators. And when we would talk about portfolios and stuff, it's a weekly lunch. Everybody meets for lunch each week and shows what they're working on. And we talk illustration. And we always said, don't ever show anything in your portfolio that you don't want to draw. And they would talk about putting stuff in the old directory of illustration, like a picture of a bike or a car. And inevitably, that's what you get assignments doing. And I did a, one of the flags that I had on my portfolio was a non-branded green tractor. And I, and it wasn't a cartoon, it was a painting of a tractor. And I got a call from the company that did the John Deere board books. And they said, could you do some, we, we saw this tractor and the tractor wasn't even cartoony. It was a, a painting. And they said, could you do a couple of these board books for us? <laughs> and so I always use that as a sample that, you know, when you have a painting in your portfolio, that's what they, and, it, and it's a little bit counterintuitive because there is a lot of portfolio advice that tells you to wait till you're ready to show your work and don't, show your portfolio to anything when really I think what happens is when people are looking for an artist for their project, they fall in love with one piece that you have and they kind of look at the other stuff. I suppose if it was extremely off base, they probably wouldn't use you, but usually it's not so much that they fall in love with your body of work. They usually fall in love with two or three pieces and they say, this is what we love in your portfolio and could you do this for us? Wow. And how long have you been doing this? I think, well, I started doing illustration in the early 90s like 92 93 right. and i started doing children's books and children's publishing probably my first book i started working on in 2004 2005 well you know it's it, that's the thing that's kind of interesting is i feel like you know as an illustrator 
I've always stayed super busy and I've always worked on a lot of interesting projects and stuff, but it's mm-hmm. kind of been a little bit under the radar. I mean, it's kind of right. just being a working professional more than anything. And there's a lot of us out there, you know, you may know names of a lot of you know top tier illustrators, but there's a lot of us that are just sort of working. I had a mentor when I was starting an illustration um, and he did a lot of game stuff too. And he was, he was a really good friend and he did a lot of battle tech stuff. And he had told me that, and he also did work for NASA and he did work for, you know, a bunch of different licenses or not licenses. Like he did stuff for National Geographic and that sort of thing. And he, he always told me, you have a great meat and potato style. You'll never win any awards, but you'll always be really busy. <laughs> nice. And he's, it, it's true because what, what I do is certainly not trendy at all, but it seems like there's less and less of it being done that way. And so I get a lot of work because of that, I think. Yeah, I mean, when I look at your work, I don't know if this is a weird thing to say, but it makes me feel calm and comfortable. Like it reminds <laughs> me of being a kid. Like it just oh, well, that's good. <laughs> sitting down with a good book. I, I really I love your illustration. I mean, especially the ones that are obviously focused on kids. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. It, it's just, it's timeless. There's no need to change. <laughs> it's... <laughs> The meat and potatoes it's, it's, is good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not complaining at all. I mean, it, it, but it, it's 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 really hard for as as you're starting to navigate the world of illustration because I think you are now in a way that we weren't bombarded with images. You know, I just had you know my favorite illustrators growing up, and I know that's a question the questionnaire you had. I mean, I loved like the Hildebrandt brothers growing up, and Boris Vallejo, and uh, Michael Whalen, and and all of those artists, but we weren't saturated in images right. the way that you kind of are now. And I think that that's intimidating in a really strange way for people getting into it because what you see online is such a, it, it's a huge amount of images, but it's not a picture of a commercial career. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I mean, there are so many rabbit holes that you can fall into at this point and it's not mm-hmm. just falling into the rabbit hole. It's that when you get out, you forgot what you were looking for. I think that's true. <laughs> and you may not realize it for six months or so. It's like, oh, that's right. I was going. And I'm going to use this as a chance to, to to plug the show notes because all these names that you've you've mentioned and the other ones that you'll mention, I will provide links to all of these people in the show notes if I can find them online. And so anything mm-hmm. we talk about that I can link to, I will include with in the show notes. I'll mention that link at the end of the show. But I encourage you, if you're listening now and you're running or jogging or just hanging out in your car or sitting in a bus, that, uh, you know, go to the website and you can check out the show notes uh, for apps that support it. You can actually click on the links and see what we're talking about. So Yeah, because I've dropped some pretty vintage 80s and 70s artists. <laughs> you have. <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's... I w- you were talking about that, and you're right. Like we're we're bombarded with so much that back in the day, you would just take two or three of these books or comic books or or magazines or whatever the case, and sit in a library and yeah. have them a stack in front of you, and that would be it. That's there's no devices, right? It's different. It's yeah. completely different. And if you if you're an illustrator, this must be so challenging now. And that's what I was going to ask you: is one is do you think people should go into illustration? Is it a career that can sustain, it sustained you. Do you think people should be chasing this? And um, maybe answer that question first and I'll ask my next one. Um, I think it is a viable, I mean, there is more stuff than ever that needs to be illustrated. And I think the biggest thing is for people to understand that there is a lot of illustration that's not necessarily 
the glamorous illustration or the, I guess what you would call maybe show illustration. I, I, there needs to be a word for it because I'm not sure, you know, it's not just doing artwork for the New Yorker or something like that. That's actually like a very small part of a huge profession. And I think you have to decide what do I want to do with my work and also be open to different types of work. I think a lot of people... And I think that's one of the things that's hardest to pick up when you're first starting to be an illustrator or a creative professional is that there are a lot of careers. Like, for example, you could do a lot of illustration. I just had my students. We just had a friend of mine who's a chief creative officer at an agency in Cincinnati. And I had him basically doing brainstorming with my students and they do a lot of work for P&G and commercials and stuff like that and they have illustrators on staff that do like the very detailed Pantene images that glow and sort of this this sort of infomatic slash scientific illustration that you see in so many commercials and ads and stuff like that somebody has to create and draw all that stuff mm -hmm. and so there are a lot of careers doing that sort of thing but a lot of people I think don't seek it out at first because they don't know that it exists and so I try to tell people if they want to do illustration or they do want to do sequential storytelling or they want to do storyboarding or illustration that there are it's your ideas that's where the sketching comes in and the ideas and being able to visualize and come up with almost anything and it whether you're you know working on something for star wars or you're working on something for pantene you know you still have to have that sort of innovative brain to say how can we show this in an interesting way and right. and those illustrators that work on those projects are very good really good at drawing fast and really good at coming up with concepts. Do you have, I'll ask it now because it seems to fit better here, is for the illustrator that's listening and wanting to get more into this, beyond using, you know, a website and posting your portfolio there and, and using Instagram and relying on that, which isn't really working for many of us now, I don't think. Um, do you have a recommendation of, of online sites and places that illustrators can go to kind of shop what they've done uh, so that other eyes can see it? Well, I think the biggest thing is have a good website because that's just a place for people to find your work after they go to a portfolio site or something like that. To be able to go through your work is really important. I mean, there's been some great... I mean, I use a lot of portfolio sites. I've, I've used childrensillustrators.com, The iSpot, and Hire an Illustrator, and I've gotten work from all three sites. I've gotten really good projects from all three sites. I've heard people say that they really like LinkedIn as a way to find people and send portfolios. You know, it, the thing that's hardest about searching for work is that a lot of times when people are looking for somebody to do an illustration, they have something that they have in mind that they're going to hire. So they have, so when you send a blind portfolio to anyone, they may love your work, but they may not have a project for you because everything is project-based, whether you're working on a book or a video game or whatever. And so a lot of times what it is, is they might be doing a book on tigers. So they do a search on tiger illustrations. And if they love your tiger illustration, then you end up being in the mix for that project. I see. I mean, it, it's, it makes it sound like people are unimaginative, but it's because there is so much work out there, they can find probably somebody that does pretty close to what they want. Right. 
by just doing a search for it. I mean, sometimes postcards work. I actually did get a book a couple years ago, and the person got my postcard at a SCBWI event 10 years before and had kept it for 10 years and wow. then used me for a project, <laughs> which was kind of funny. I, it, It's it's kind of neat when you get stories like that. <laughs> now, one thing that we're, you know, that we're struggling with, I, I have a day job in health research, so um, that's what I work on during the day. But, And I've got two daughters, so I'm going to ask this question around equity and diversity and inclusion. Within the illustration world, do you feel that it 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 accommodates that with regard to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Do you think that is a safe space? Because I know some industries are really slow about moving into this. I know nothing about the illustration industry, but I'm wondering for the person who's listening that may that may be concerned about who they are being a, a roadblock for them getting into the industry. Can you speak to that and maybe you know, if possible, reassure them? I think they are getting a lot better. I think. When I started out, there certainly weren't as many women and, uh, you know, people, you know, of different races that were getting work. But I think that it is getting a lot better. And that's good. I'm seeing more and more people from all over the world doing work. And I think art directors are very cognizant of it and are working really hard to be diverse. And I think that that's good. Do you feel that the pay has been equitable? I think that it's... I think that it's changing. I think part of it is in your head, too. I think you have to ask for what you think that you're worth. And I think that takes a while to get there. It took me a while to get there. I actually changed all of my price structure because I talked to another illustrator and found out how much they were charging. <laughs> and it made me rethink everything. And so I started charging a lot more. And I it didn't hurt. I mean, I've, I've gotten more work since then than ever since then. So, and it's not... I mean, it's not like it's, and it's not gouging. It's like making a living wage. I mean, as an illustrator, you're probably not going to have a Ferrari or anything like that. I mean, yes, there are people that license and make a lot of money, but like every industry, that's not most of the people. Right. You can make a living wage and be comfortable. You're probably not going to be rich, but again, most people aren't. So and and it, you shouldn't go into any profession expecting that to happen. But but are you happy, Christina? Are you happy? I am. I am. I feel very fortunate to get to work on a lot of really interesting things. Rich doesn't matter. I think the most important thing, but it is important to get compensated enough so that you aren't, so that you're able to survive. I mean, you don't want to be in a situation where you can't pay your bills. And that's the most important thing is to be able to make sure you're getting enough compensation to pay for a decent lifestyle. And like I said, I'm not expecting somebody to, you know, have, have expensive cars and, and, and a jet setting life, but you can live comfortably. And, you know, in some professions, you know, if you're on site and stuff, you can make quite a bit if you, you know, choose to live in, in the environment where you, like a lot of places you have to move to different cities. That's changing a little bit. And, but they might be more expensive to live in and that sort of thing. Um, fortunately, where I live, it's a pretty inexpensive area of the United States. Cincinnati is not. And my husband and I kind of structured our lifestyle. We both knew we wanted to start our own businesses. Uh, Troy started his own engineering business. He left uh, Kenner slash Hasbro in the mid-90s and started his own company doing you know toy engineering and product engineering out of the house. And we decided to structure our life so that would be possible nice your point about maybe it's this concept of uh, of you know draw today and, and sell for tomorrow 
that people need to be aware. And I've heard this from other artists too, where, you know, regardless of, of, of their gender or race, it doesn't matter. A lot of artists don't charge enough for what they do. Well, I think a lot of people are afraid to charge what they're worth. And understand, I think part of that is the bombardment of images, but it's not only that, because I think for years people have been told that they are the only, you know, that there's a, it's kind of like a devil, the devil wears Prada where they keep telling her there's a thousand girls that would do your job or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think for years they have told artists that anyone could t- replace you and a thousand artists could do your job, but that really is not true. When, by the time somebody contacts you with a book or something like that, they have already had 10 meetings trying to figure out who to use. So when they've narrowed it down to two or three illustrators, you have a little bit of negotiating space because they've figured out who they love, you know, and who they want to use. And so you have a bit of negotiating power with that. Nice. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, but but people aren't usually told that. They're usually told, <laughs> you know, you better make them happy. You, you, know, you better do exactly what they say. Or, and, and there is, I mean, you're being hired to be a visual professional. And you are being hired for your vision and for your ability to do what they want. And so you have, they want your opinion. They want you to do the best work. And they've hired you because they love whatever piece they saw in your portfolio that made them want to hire you. And I think a lot of people kind of discount that. And I, I try to tell my students that because I teach illustration and I always tell them, you know, when somebody has hired you for your brain and your visual ability, you have leverage. You're not a throwaway person at that point that they're going to easily be able to replace. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be able to walk into that and own it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard because there's so much it imposter is. syndrome as well. And maybe it's your first gig, but uh, you can always up your prices. And uh, you don't have to be just because you had a rate of whatever yesterday, you can change it today. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I mean, that's all great to hear because I think, you know, I think the challenge with art, and I was thinking this as you were talking, right? You, so many people will say, can you just do this? thing for me. Can you just draw my daughter? Can you draw my dog? Can you paint my dog? Right. And people don't, it'll leave their mouth and they'll go away and they'll come back and see the work that's done. And they have no concept really. Many people don't have a a concept of what was in between, like from Mm -hmm. the start to end, right? You're not going to necessarily, and some people will, but you're not going to necessarily ask your neighbor to landscape your backyard because everybody's watching that activity if it's happening, right? And it's like, oh my God, that looks like so much hard work. I think people would say that if they saw the artist working, right? And it's not the Instagram, you know, beauty shots of, of you working. Yeah, it like is the time lapse. Exactly. It's hair being pulled out on the table. It's dipping your paintbrush in your coffee. It's, it's all that stuff, right? Uh, well, I think that, especially with il- really realistic illustration, a lot of times there's a tendency when you see it to say, because it's so beautiful and it's so well executed, it looks effortless. It's kind of like, I always tell my students, it's kind of like when you're watching an ice skater and you see them do like a quadruple flip or something and they land it perfectly. And then you're, you say, wow, that's amazing. It looks so easy. It is not, it's the hardest thing in the world you can do, but it looks really easy. And I think a lot of people look at illustration and really good painting you know, particularly really photorealistic illustration or very accomplished illustration because it's so, you relate to it so well and you you think that it, oh, well, I could do that. It looks so easy, but it's because it looks effortless. The person has made it look 
very inviting and easy to do. But if you try to do what that person did, you can't. Mm-hmm. But it sure it sure looks effortless. I can't even stand up on ice skates. But, you know, you might see somebody fall that's just done like something pretty amazing when you're watching the Olympics or something. And then you say, well, why did that person fall? It's because what they were doing was the hardest thing you could possibly do physically. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the very high end art that you see, people don't appreciate it. And I think that's why it's not appreciated as much as it could be. Yeah. And I think this is the one thing, maybe not the one thing, it is one thing that Instagram helps us with is telling the mm-hmm. behind the scenes, what's behind the curtain, right? That, you know, you put up this 30 second clip or whatever the case. And rather than doing a time lapse, just doing a, a few shortcuts of real time, and you get a sense of, wow, you know, that nose on the tiger must have taken a few hours based on the progress I'm seeing. And it gives people a sense of scale of time and Mm -hmm, skill. mm -hmm. So I think there's an advantage around, you know, I know that Instagram is pushing reels and videos, but I think that's the big advantage with that is it it allows us to tell the behind the scenes story of, of, of how, you know, these artist wizards are able to create the work that they can do is because it takes time and it takes effort. It takes skill. And, uh, you know, we should be allowed to charge for that. So, absolutely. Oh, definitely. And I think that one thing when people, so many people want to do either children's books or do comics. And the thing to know is not so much even getting past, am I good enough? But the biggest hurdle, I think, is am I able to make that much art in a timely manner? (laughs) Because even a picture book is like running a marathon. And it is relentless when you're working on it and a, and a comic is that on steroids <laughs> and it's it's something that can really burn people out too mm-hmm. and so you have to that's where you have to pace yourself and think about self-care and you know not just do that or you will get kind of ground up i think you will that's where you kind of get the thing where you don't want to ever draw again i mean there are people that i know that have I mean, several people that I've known that were making a good career in illustration and then they just left it because it was just, there's so much, you know, besides just landing the work and getting the job. I mean, getting the job, I think that that's the thing that's that's hardest, getting the job's the easy part. Uh, Finishing it is the hard part, like doing all of those illustrations and getting them uploaded and sending to them. That's the the true journey. So it's, it's sort of... Like anything, anything in life, you know, when you first land something, like any job that you get, of course, it ends up being a lot more complicated and it's a lot more gnarly than you ever expected. It's like getting married. <laughs> it, it kind of, it kind of is, you know, you you sort of <laughs> go through the sketches and you're like, this is great. And then when you're, you, I, there was a book that I, one of the train books and I was, I was thinking, why did I draw a band <laughs> in this sketch? <laughs> what was I thinking? You know, this took over, you know, two weeks to paint. <laughs> what was I thinking, putting a crowd of people, a band with instruments and <laughs> You know, think about that pencil mileage when you're designing your pages. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to come down on, on, on marriage. I'm I'm happily married, but it is there is that, that honeymoon phase around all of these. Mm-hmm. And it could be based on your career, it could be based on a specific project. But, you know, this is back to that point about a portfolio. If you're going to put up art in your portfolio that you don't really enjoy doing and you have to, you, you don't, let's say you don't like doing tigers. 
um, mm-hmm. and you put up tigers, and then somebody comes to you and says, "We want to do your, uh, you know, do you want to do a tiger book? Here's a bunch of money for you," and you're like, "Sure," and then you've got to draw thirty. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> so <laughs> it 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 is. <laughs> yeah, and it's just. I mean, I I think there's great opportunity. I do think that even you mentioned AI earlier. I think all of this is adding more value to what is traditional illustration, traditional art. Agreed. I, I think there's opportunities. I think there's opportunities to weave AI into what we're doing around inspiration and things like that, possibly. But uh, mm-hmm. none of this goes away. I, I think that the AI thing is really like any sort of trend. Like where the only thing that I find disturbing about it is where they're finding signatures of other artists, where it kind of mixes stuff that people have painted, and that's how it's made rather than... I mean, it's not truly an original right. thing. And that's and that is disturbing and not disturbing for the reason that that it might take people's jobs, but because it's stealing these people's work. Right. And I find that unfortunate. And I hope that there is a way... I hope people are able to fight back against that. I My hope is in the medical illustrators because the medical illustrators are the best artists in the world for keeping their rights. I don't know if you've interviewed any on your show. I have. Miss Schumacher was on. Um, but they are on it. And they make the illustration world better for everybody else because they fight for copyright better than anyone else. That's awesome. <laughs> I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to mention that to her. She should come back and listen to this episode. Yeah, because it's... Uh, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity with AI. I think, you know, but there was that story that came out a little while ago. I think it was somebody found a, a Basquiat painting that wasn't his uh, because the FedEx logo that the imposter used or whatever the case didn't exist at the time that Basquiat was alive. Oh, and, interesting. And this is, I'm, I may get that wrong. I will link to it in the show notes. But, you know, people are worried about AI, but this idea of copying people's work has been happening forever. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the really good AI that's happening now is not like a Photoshop cut and paste. It is kind of a generative um, process, right? So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's interesting, especially for storyboard artists, uh, to be able to use this character, character designers, being able to kind of flesh out more ideas that it's uh there's some opportunities there but we'll see where it goes it's you know it with the ai stuff it's just trying to figure out is it a medium or is it a is it a tool right mm-hmm. um, and i think it's i think it's more of a tool I, I don't think it has the power to me to be a medium but i think a lot of people think it is that and i i may be wrong but i i think it's more of a tool than a medium i think that it it's it's very much like when I first started, you know, back in the 90s and talking to illustrators that had started their career in the 50s and 60s and the fear of photography taking over everything. I mean, that was a really big fear that they would never need illustration again because photography was going to be what they used. And a lot of that stuff really has to do with trends and what people are enjoying looking at and that sort of thing. And there are so many different types of products and publications that are made. I mean, that's the good news, I guess, after all of this, is when you're working as an illustrator, all you need is a couple clients that really appreciate your work and hire you. You don't need to get hired by everyone, and you can't get hired by everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that, too. I mean, you aren't going to... You may not be able to... There may be some sort of dream client that you're reaching for that you can't attain, but that doesn't mean that there's not another dream client you never thought about that you could get and that would appreciate your work. I mean, I think a lot of times 
people, I think the biggest thing you need to do when you're getting into illustration is take a hard look at your work and say, is this the work that the people that the people are buying in the industry I want to get into? Like, if you look at your picture, like, if I wanted to do work for Halo, and I'm looking at my little cute picture of a bunny or, you know, a painting of a cat or something, and mm -hmm. I, they're not going to hire somebody that has this stuff in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. And if you think that they will, then you need to reassess your choices of portfolio. Yep. Because they're not going to pick you based on those items in your portfolio. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you mentioned this idea of, of this fear, this transition. You know, mm -hmm. you must have experienced it when Photoshop got really big for these mm -hmm. tr traditional artists. But I wanted to ask you about your tools. And because mm -hmm. oh, sure. when I've heard you talk about this before, you've got a, quite an interesting mix in what you're doing. Um, and then we'll get into the urban sketching, which is obviously <laughs> analog, but... I'm wondering, you know, at this point in time, and, you know, maybe we can go back a few years as well, but at this point in time, when you're working on your illustrations for all these wonderful books, I think it's 60 books you've illustrated? Over, yeah, yeah. Over 60 books? Um, uh -huh. When you're working on it now, are you doing this, you know, let's talk artist to artist here, are you using Photoshop with like a Cintiq tablet? Are you doing stuff mm -hmm. analog and scanning it in? Maybe you can talk a bit about what your process is now. It depends on how I feel like doing the book. Sometimes it's all digital. Um, sometimes it's painted and then I scan it in. The bottom line is if you're doing work for commercial publication, it's going to have to end up digital. Um, you can spray paint it on a wall. You can do it no matter how you, your process is to create your illustration. What you need to give your client at the end is a digital file. And now back when I started, we used to mail paintings to people and they would scan them. Now publishers do not have a big pre-press department that color corrects all your stuff. So you better know how to color correct your work when you send it in. As a matter of fact, I, a couple of years ago, I had a friend who had sent all her paintings into a book for a pretty major publisher, and she was very disappointed by how it was reproduced because they did no color correction on the book. And it looked really kind of faded, and she wasn't really happy with the printing. And so it's really in your best interest to, to no matter how you make it, to make it so it looks good when it prints out. And it really depends on the book. The, the two books that I'm working on right now, I'm going to paint and then scan them in. And sometimes I scan them in in pieces and have the background separate and stuff on the foreground. Um, sometimes I will print out my drawing on watercolor paper and paint over that. It's really a mixed media. But I also, I mean, I, I love Photoshop. So I have a Cintiq tablet and I love painting in it. And I really enjoy... All of I enjoy the mediums for what they are. I think the mistake a lot of people think about Photoshop and digital is somehow they have this impression that it's easier or quicker, and it's not. It's just different. It, it's the the ability to make the image work and everything in it work. All of those skills are separate from. It doesn't matter how you're making your art. If you're not, if the composition's not good, if the design's not good, that rules over however you create it. I love that you're still painting, and I'm wondering why are you doing that. And I, I, I'm I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's great. But are you doing it because like part of me is thinking, would you do it because you don't want to lose the ability of painting because you've done it for so many years, or is it because of a state of mind or a specific effect? Because your watercolor is 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 or your and acrylic are are wonderful, but what how do you decide? 
there's I, I think that painting and and you can get this in Photoshop too. I think there's something about the physics of paint that still I still don't think has fully been realized digitally. And yeah, they have a lot of really cool like simulations of watercolor and but at the end it's it's still and and maybe one day it will be no different than when you're out painting. But there, there's something, you get fewer happy accidents with digital than you, like there's something about paint that there's always like some sort of happy accident that can happen, especially with watercolor that, that is sort of beyond the mathematics that digital programs can do. I mean, they can get really close, but sometimes it's like if there's something I want to do, it just would be easier for me to paint it and use a brush. And maybe that's because of me straddling these two timelines as far as people that are fully digital and people that use paint. The the drawbacks to using paint when you're illustrating is it just, it takes a lot more time to fix it, to upload it to, because there's always like cat hair that gets in your paintings that you don't notice till you're in the scan. And, and a lot of paints that you use are out of gamut, which for those that that have not done a lot of work for publication, a lot of the pigments used in paints that make them really bright don't scan very well. So you have to go back in and you'll notice that's why a lot of times you're, you might be unsatisfied by a scan. Fluorescent colors in particular, the scanners don't see that well. Like a fluorescent green kind of becomes like an olive green. And a lot of the uh, paint colors just aren't going to be as vibrant just because, especially in CMYK when you're printing stuff, like cyan is very weak on the press and you don't, the amount of colors are fewer than, like RGB has way more colors than CMYK does. So unless you are using special inks on the press or something like that, it's really hard to get that vibrance from an original piece of art. Right. Um, and so it takes a bit more um, care when I scan in a painting because I have to fix a lot of stuff that I, you know, have already, but then there's some stuff that I think works better I, th I still think that there's a spontaneity to paint that, again, is hard to reproduce fully digitally. And that doesn't mean that I don't love painting digitally. I do. But they each have their own pros and cons. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Yeah, it's it's interesting you're talking about this because I'm thinking back to some recent scans I did of, I've done of my artwork that I've done on mm -hmm. both cold press and hot press paper. And when I scan and then zoom in to try and clean up the edges because I want to do a, a print of it or whatever, I'm thinking, oh, what an awful mess I've done here. Like when you when you zoom in and look at it, you realize like there's so much imperfection here. And I, I you know, I focus on realism and, you know, a lot of these pieces I'm talking about, it's an hour, an hour and a half that I've spent on them, right? But I zoom in and it's like, why? What a what a mess! But one thing I haven't tried now you've triggered me is I'm going to take maybe one of these scans and see if I can replicate the painting in Procreate to look the same thing the same way based on the scan. And I, I I'm curious how that's going to turn out because I I, mm -hmm. I I think it'll I think it'll reinforce that analog is is still good and still fun. I think it's just make a lot of people when they have not done it professionally have not used a scanner that much and and. You have to make sure that your scanner, for one thing, is really good at getting mid-tones and stuff. And a lot of times that's just an adjustment. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of times when you first load your software into your scanner, it kind of goes into 
quick scan mode and so it it is not designed for scanning paintings or artwork mm -hmm. and you have to usually like in epson they have a professional dashboard that you can go into and and make it so it's much more sensitive and gets a lot of those like particularly watercolors can be blown out and hard to scan if you don't have your settings right and a lot of times it's just you've never if you've not scanned that much before you haven't had that much experience trying to a lot of it's just getting it to the right settings so it knows how to see your artwork that's a really good point and the the, the disadvantage too is now you're you know, and the challenge I had is I was scanning at 600 DPI and then I was zooming mm -hmm. in. So I was looking beyond my visual capability at looking at exactly. my paper. And, and that's when you realize, wow, watercolor was really doing its own thing, even at this level. Like it's. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about doing the analog stuff. Are you working with watercolor, acrylic, mm -hmm. oil? Like what's your medium of choice and how do you kind of approach that? When I first started doing children's books, I mostly used acrylic and I tend to paint very gouache. Like I tend not to, when I paint in acrylics, I tend to use more opaque application than watercolor style application. So a lot of times when I would paint with acrylics, I would use like golden paints. Their, their airbrush paints are meant to, are very liquid. And so rather than using more water, I would use like their opaque white a lot to mix with colors to get sort of the viscosity and color saturation that I wanted. And now, you know, when I started urban sketching, I started doing a lot more watercolor. And so I'm doing a lot more watercolor, but I'm not a watercolor purist. I'm not afraid to throw a little bit of opaque on there if I feel like it. Um, I think that's my illustration background. I, a lot of times when you're an illustrator, you just do whatever you wanted, you can do to get that look that you want. Whereas a lot of times when you start working in a medium, like say color pencil or watercolor, you start getting very like, I'm only going to use watercolor on this. And I've never worried about that. And I actually changed my watercolors a couple of years ago. I went to the symposium in Chicago and they gave us a page of those dots from core watercolors which is made by golden and i love their colors and they're made to work with their golden acrylics so they've formulated it so it makes it kind of gouache so now i pretty much use a mixture of golden paints and watercolor when i'm painting for children's books or for anything the only problem when you start mixing acrylics with watercolor is that you burn through your watercolors really fast because you know, you're only meant to put like a little bit of watercolor out and with with acrylics, you end up using a lot more and then it dries up, you know, which the watercolors you can re-wet. Right. I'm not a watercolor purist either. Like I have no problem putting a bit of gouache. Typically it's just white gouache, but uh, sometimes I, I have a tan gouache that I use as well. And, you know, I look at people like James Gurney, who's been doing this forever and, you know, I see him not just using white gouache or gouache, period, but he's using colored pencil and pastel and everything. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It's just getting the job done, right? It's getting what you're you're trying to achieve and you'll find your you'll find your way, right? You don't have to be, you can be a watercolor purist, but you don't have to be. And you don't have to be necessarily stressed about that because, especially in watercolor, I remember the first painting I did, I was really bothered that the wa white watercolor paint that I had in this cheap set wasn't doing its job. I had done no research. I was like, I'm going to do watercolor. Yeah, it's not opaque. No, yeah. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> and I was like, come on. But uh, I quickly found out how to fix that. How much of your work now are you doing with analog, that you're starting analog? 
It depends when you'd ask me. Right now I'm doing a bunch of analog stuff, but the book that just came out for the San Diego Zoo, I did all digital. And the book I did before that was done in watercolor. So I kind of alternate. I mean, the artwork probably doesn't look in the end that different from each other, but a lot of times it just depends, you know, how I want to approach it. It really is project to project, whether I'm going to work digital or I'm going to work in paint. And it, part of it depends how fast I have to get it done. I think now it probably takes me longer when I'm doing analog just because of the scans of the pieces and cleaning them up and getting them ready for press it takes a lot longer um, now than just doing it digitally. But it, it really it really depends on the effect that I want and how I want the work to look. Interesting. And I still do a lot of both. And I, I don't know if that's a definitive enough answer. <laughs> that's fine. I think, I think a lot of people, I, I try not to get in a rut either. I mean, I, I really like working digitally. And I know some people kind of are averse to it. Because especially people in, in my age group are not, it, it, I think it's been a, a harder transition. And I've seen people that didn't transition at all have had a really difficult time. I, I think it's because it's not just, I mean, you can draw on whatever medium you want, but if you can't competently give it to someone digitally, it makes it a lot harder on everyone. Right. Yeah, understood. Although I don't miss mailing paintings. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, that's a good thing. And I know that, you know, it, it's not just you're doing a scene and uh, traditionally and scanning mm -hmm. it, is that you may do... 10 12 different animals analog mm -hmm. and you may compile that image digitally mm -hmm. so it's not just that you're scanning and tweaking an image you may be recompiling that differently as part of those exactly pages in the book, yes. right? yeah so I'd, because i've heard you talk about that before and i think that's important for people to realize it's not just the, the it could be the whole composition is done digitally but all the rendering could be done by analog right that you've painted everything yes, you're just yeah. pulling it together and and it just makes it easier because when you're working particularly on picture books, but you're working with the designer. And so illustrate that's where illustration is really hand in hand with design. And that is the thing that really kind of sets it apart from like where you're just sitting in your sketchbook and doodling or whatever, is that when you get a book, you are given very strict parameters of how big that book is, you know, and how it's going to be printed and where the text is going to go. And you're working with a production team that's, you know, the designer, the sometimes art director, editor. I mean, there's a lot of different people that have input. And so a lot of times you end up, even if I do a painting, like a lot of times you have to be flexible because sometimes you have to move stuff because text goes there or because, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not going into the bleed right or you know it's going too close to the gutter which is the center of the book i mean there's a lot of those technical aspects that you have to be really aware of right it's funny i'm flipping through your instagram feed and i'm seeing a tauntaun here in <laughs> and it's like this is a character from star wars and jabba the <laughs> in the background and i just i love tauntaun so uh, <laughs> so i i wanted to um understand how you how you got into urban sketching because you know it's I can imagine working for yourself and and doing all of this work that you somehow found the time to urban sketch and I'm wondering if you just talk about how you how you stumbled into that I probably started urban sketching like in 2011 and 
I just, I, I've always loved travel. I'm a, a bit of a travel addict. And I started going, I, I started sketching and, and really keeping my sketchbook. And then I went, a friend of mine, uh, Amy Bogart, and you can put a link to her, her stuff. She does these trips to Taos. Now she does a trip to uh, Guatemala every year for sketching. And she also does a trip to Ireland. And we went to Taos, New Mexico, and it was just really fun. We worked in sketchbooks and that sort of thing. And I just really got into it. And I found it, again, really freeing because I love drawing stuff that is just whatever I feel like doing at the time and has no explanation. Because I don't just sketch like urban sketch, but I also do like stream of consciousness drawings that I doodle and draw weird characters and I do weird scenes. And I love the freedom of that and sometimes I show it on social media I don't show everything on social media that's in my sketchbook I mean mm -hmm. sometimes it's it just if, if, if it turns out and I, I feel like showing it I do but it, it's a great way to keep you from being I think a lot of times a lot of frustration sets in when you are doing so much stuff that's very dictated and I think it's just really enjoyable and, and it's a way to sit outside and be outside and drawing and it's a great way to interact with other people I think the thing that I love about urban sketching is I'm a very social person for being somebody that works at home and um, you know a lot of people that work out of the house tend to be introverted and I'm not and so I love going out and sketching and being with other people and it's a way to interact with other people that's not like say you know, going out to eat or to a bar. We just hang out and sketch for a couple of hours, you know, look at each other's sketches and then go home. And it, there's something really appealing about that. Hmm. And, you know, I, I go out and sketch by myself too, but I think that it just, it just sort of took off and I just loved doing it. And I, you know, carry a small sketchbook with me all the time. And there's a lot of times when you are stuck somewhere, like a waiting room, or if you're you know, waiting for somebody where you can, it, it makes, it makes the time go by. You can just draw. I guess some people might watch stuff on their phone, right? I guess, but I, I kind of like to start drawing and draw the stuff around me. And it, it just, there's a lot, I think it makes you appreciate the world a little bit better around you. Mm. I mean, there is so much, I mean, I particularly love old architecture and there's so much going on in um, Cincinnati has a lot of Italian architecture. It, it was founded in the, early 1800s and so there's a lot of really neat uh like friezes that have all kinds of sculptures in them and scroll work and, and that stuff is all really fun to draw mm -hmm. but like almost anything that you draw it's enjoyable to sort of how do I make a composition out of this it may not look that interesting you know as you're driving by it but there's something interesting about it when you make it into and it, there was actually interesting because I was listening to your interview with with um, James Gurney and he said the same thing and I was like yeah that's it it's kind of cool that you see something around you like you're in your grocery store parking lot I mean I like during COVID I did sketches while I was waiting for them to put the groceries in the car <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny because I I do the same thing so I carry I have mm -hmm. a little kit and I carry my little sketchbook it's a small a6 sketchbook and I bring it with me everywhere I go and what I find really interesting is I was first worried about doing the sketching and the drawing and the painting while I was waiting for something because I knew that I would be interrupted at some point and I'd have to stop. And But what I realized is that when I got interrupted and I had to stop, I missed it so much. And in some mm -hmm. ways, 
going out, bringing your sketchbook with you and having, you know, having that chance to, to paint or draw for 10 minutes, half an hour, and then being interrupted will pull you back harder <laughs> the next mm-hmm. time. And so I encourage being interrupted because I know that this will keep pulling me forward because I will realize how how the time flew and how much I really enjoyed it. And then I look forward to the next time. So you know, for the people that are listening to this right now and you're thinking about doing this and worried about the interruptions, you need to look at it that way because you're going to realize the interruption is like, oh, I was just about to finish this. Now I've got to let this cerulean blue dry and I've got to figure it out again. And um, But you're going to realize how important that time was and how, how it disappeared and how much better you feel. And uh, you're going to want to get back to it pretty soon again. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I one of the things that you had asked was like drawing from a photo or drawing from life. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the big things in the manifest for urban sketchers is drawing from life. And I think that there's something about that that is not only, it's an interaction that's not, duplicated by drawing from a photograph like when you're actually in a place where everything's happening and you're drawing it's it's sort of a it becomes a different interactive experience that goes beyond drawing Mm -hmm. and i think that that's one of the most interesting things about it and and you notice things you wouldn't notice and you observe what's going on and you observe stuff around you that you normally ignore and i think that that that's why I kind of love the manifest that urban sketchers has is because they, they say it doesn't matter if you're a professional or if you're amateur, it's we, it's, it's that you're drawing on location and partaking of the experience without being a professional and you shouldn't look at it that way. I mean, I think it all comes back to the process over result. Exactly. And I, and I think what's really interesting about urban sketching is that it is a snapshot of a movie for which mm-hmm. you're the only one that ever saw it, right? So when people mm-hmm. look at your work, they'll think, oh, that's a really nice render that you did of this or that. But when you look at it, you're going to think about, oh, when I was working on that tree, this person was asking me about something else, or I couldn't draw that tree because there was a truck parked in front of it, and I eventually put yeah. it in because the truck left. And so the movie you have in your head is different than anyone else's, and it really feels special when you start to describe your work that you realize, wow, I have a unique perspective, and we're looking at the same thing here. And yeah, it does exactly. feel special. Yeah, I mean, and it's addictive. I mean, you know, you just end up love do- loving to do it, and I know it drives everybody crazy. My husband always talks about an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that kind of segues into the book that I'm working on, where it's my sketching obsession, because he really does think that, you know, that's all I think about. <laughs> so let's let's jump into that in one second. I need to ask uh-huh. you about your tools, because we always, okay. as artists, this is always the conversation about what sketchbook okay. do you like and what tools do you bring with you? Um, You know, I... I, I usually have a paintbrush and I usually have a water brush um, because I, I like those if I don't have, you know, a way to carry water. And I like the really tiny, I like to have really small stuff, like small palettes. And actually, you know, like that's why we made the little small palette that's that's uh, part of the Kickstarter. So I like really small palettes because I, you know, that mean, means you can fit it all in your purse. I mean... In theory, I try to carry very little, but I noticed yesterday when I took my bag out and was sketching that it had ballooned quite a bit because I had a lot, it it becomes, it starts out small and then becomes a reservoir that fills up. But if I can only take a few things, it's usually 
Um, I really like cheap tools. So I, when I do pencil sketching a lot, I just buy those yellow pencils like by hundreds and just use an electric sharpener on them. I mean, I also like my, I do have, you know, the black wing pencils too. Mm -hmm. And, and I like playing with those occasionally, but like when I'm sketching for like, especially for books and stuff, a lot of times I just use cheap pencils or if I'm sketching out, you know, stuff I won't be afraid to lose. So I usually use cheap pens. I, I like the Sharpie pens. Um, if I'm going for a little more expensive, I like the Tombow pens too. But the Sharpie pens are great because you can paint over them pretty heavily and they don't bleed at all. And they, a lot of times, because I, I know you had asked, do I do pencil drawing? It depends. Like if I don't have much time, I either will work in ballpoint pen, which ballpoint pen, um, you know, just cheap big pens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and sometimes I'll use a little ink with that. Or sometimes I'll use a color ballpoint pen and mix it with ink or some, you know, it, it just depends what I feel like at the time. Lately, I've been doing a lot of ink drawings, just starting with the ink, just to, I'm trying to move the, make the process quicker and quicker to get down. So I'm always challenging myself to get things down more quickly and not spend as much time. I mean, it depends. I mean, sometimes in, I'm in the mood to do something that's much longer and more detailed. And sometimes I want to see how quickly I can get the essence of it down. Right. Yeah, it, it is always a challenge. Like how, how few, what's the lowest number of lines you can use to render this mm -hmm. piece, right? Or, um, you know, knowing that you've been there for an hour and the sun has changed and that shadow on the rock is now no longer a shadow on the rock, right? And <laughs> That kind of stuff. Usually what it means is you've been in a shady spot and then suddenly you're in the sun and, yes. you're, and you're saying, okay, this is really bad. <laughs> I'm going to die of heat stroke. That's right. We are done. <laughs> I know. Just... It's, 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 it, that, that, that's usually bad. Like okay, we tend to start in the morning and so it's really nice and misty and cool. And then yeah. like two hours later you realize, oh my gosh, I'm in the sun and <laughs> <laughs> this has not turned out very well. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I, I don't know if I'm a, I mean, as far as cools, for, like I said, I love the core watercolors. I do use some Winsor Newton and, and, and some Daniel Smith, but my go-to mostly is the core watercolors just because I really like the pigments and the pigment concentration. A lot of them are a little brighter and they, I think, water down really nice and keep a, I mean, they almost have a dye quality hmm. to them which that's probably just more of my illustrator seeping through because I like stuff to have a lot of bright color in it. So I've gradually been abandoning my watercolors that don't give you that pop. I think it's from drawing cars too much like an industrial design. I like everything to have like highlights on it and stuff. That's sort of a mindset. Do, do, these, uh, do these paints reactivate as well? Um, core does. Okay. Uh, the core watercolors do. Obviously, if you mix them with acrylic, they won't. Right. Right, but they do reactivate. They're not like the ink tense watercolors that exactly once they yeah. dry, they're done. Yeah, yeah. So I could fill a palette with them, you know, and that's usually what I fill small palettes with. Okay. I mean, I tend to buy a color more because I like it than usually what the brand of it is. Okay. And, you know, there's a couple go-to colors and and that I really love. And so this leads to not only did you illustrate over sixty books and do all this other stuff and then do some urban sketching on the side. You decided I need to do more. 
and now you want to do I a book. Is, I'm, I'm, I, I think I just make a lot of bad decisions. Is what I, this is. This is sort of a series of <laughs> unfortunate decisions. Yeah, um, we, we love you already. You don't have to be making more work. But um, maybe you could talk about this this book that you've started on Kickstarter, my sketching obsession, and and how it started beyond maybe a conversation with your husband. <laughs> Well, you know, for years people have said, when am I going to do a book on sketching? And I didn't want to do just a portfolio book. Well, two things happened. I didn't want to just do a portfolio book that just showed work. I wanted to show, because I, since I teach a lot now too, I always do sketching exercises with my students. A lot of times we'll start class doing timed exercises. Um, I learned so much about my students making them do sketches in two minutes or five minutes then when I give them an assignment, if I if I give an assignment and say, do 20 sketches by tomorrow, it's very interesting what I get. If I make them do 20 sketches, two minutes each, it's the two things happen. It's amazing how much better that is a lot of times than what they bring me when they've been given a week to do it. And you learn a lot about the way they think and visualize. And so I wanted to kind of incorporate that into the book too. Because I think a lot of times if when you're le- left and maybe it's because when you're, you, you get kind of, it's, it's the word foggy. It's sort of like when you have something, you start think you start getting unfocused and stop getting the results of what you want. If I say to draw this prompt and I give you an hour to do it and I've done experiments, like I'll give somebody 10 minutes and two minutes and what they get done in two minutes is often better than what they get done in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. And perhaps you've spoken to people that might explain the mechanism of that. And I think it's because it sort of is the raw brain at first. Like, it's almost like a raw visualization. But a lot of times, like when you're first sketching, even like urban sketching, what you draw really quickly first is often more accurate and and more proportional than when you start saying, well, I'm going to draw this little like scroll work here and then it sort of goes because it starts getting out of scale Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that stuff in the book as well as you know I have travel anecdotes and talk about you know experiences sketching and and show some of the work too I wanted it to be a combination work and I decided to do it because you know for years people had asked if I was going to do it and I realized I'm not getting any younger and it's sort of like as I get older will I have the energy to do this sort of thing because you know I'm not exactly I don't want to use the word not young but I I mean it's 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 one of those things that you might as if I wait till I can fit it in it's never going to happen and so you almost have to kind of disrupt your schedule and say I'm just going to force it in you know, my whole schedule, I always say it's like deadline Jenga. You kind of push different blocks and see which ones will wiggle and which ones will make the whole thing fall down. <laughs> That's my life. That's my life. It's like pushing at the little blocks and seeing which one moves the most so I can. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because it's, you know, is the sketching obsession the sketches or is the sketching obsession the book? Like at this point, what's what's the obsession? I think the obsession is actually sketching. You know, when you agree to do a book, suddenly there's a lot of other 
like production stuff you have to do. I mean, if it was simply just going out and sketching, that would be a lot more fun. And not that it's not fun, but yeah. you know, suddenly you're saying, oh my gosh, I need an image here for this. And that means I have to draw this. And, and then it becomes a lot more like my other book projects. I mean, there is like whenever you take on a project like this, there is the production aspect of it that, you know, you have the concept and that's the really fun part. And then it's like, oh my gosh, now I have to actually do this thing. You know, and and that's why I actually I, there was another interview that I did and somebody said, why did you get an editor and a designer for this? And I said, because it makes it a lot for one thing, it makes it more likely for the product to get done. But as much illustration as I've done, I have not done that much technical writing. And so I decided to bring some people in to help with that so that the book would be readable. Right. I mean, I've seen a lot of books that artists have kind of put together and you know they're not things you're going to sit down usually and read and look through, you know and so I wanted it to have a index and I wanted it to have a sequence to it so that people could get some use out of it besides just looking at sketches because I, I also think that it's I, I love it when people get into sketching you mentioned that you have gotten into art recently mm -hmm. And I love it when people start to do artwork just for themselves, especially in this sort of gig-oriented economy. Whenever somebody gets into doing something, suddenly people are like, well, why don't you sell this? And why don't you... And, and to me, there's something really wonderful about just doing it because you love doing it. Mm -hmm. And people used to do more artwork because before we took pictures of everything and stuff, it was, you know, a way to show people what you'd seen you know scientists i mean they've actually even said and i enviously listened that you'd went to that um nature journaling workshop i, w I wish i could have gone to that because um, i love drawing out in the field and drawing plants and stuff and you know animals obviously too they used to they're now they're teaching drawing classes for scientists again because when you photograph something the way it distorts it is not all you know photos believe it or not distort stuff a lot and so if you're observing something, you may not be able to tell how many legs it has when you're looking at the photos later. But when you sketch it, you really not only, even if you sketch it badly, you, you the learning process of what you're drawing is better than just the drawing. Mm -hmm. Like you've learned more about what you're seeing in the field than just casually walking by it and snapping a quick picture. And... I think there's a huge value in that for anyone, you know, like learning how to write. Yeah, I agree. I've, you know, I've taught young kids about drawing and, and how to sketch and just dealing with perspective and value and things like that. And I, you know, I said this in the last episode that drawing is, is you will use it no matter what career you have, there'll be some point when you probably will want to draw and maybe that's when you rediscover it again. And that's when you <laughs> decide that you really should be an artist. But, you know, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a scientist, you know, it's a great way to be able to convey ideas and capture moments. And I think your book, when I when I watch the video and, you've, and when, you know, I look at some of the imagery, this looks brilliant. It's oh, thanks. <laughs> it's uh, it's great to see this kind of stuff up on Kickstarter, and this is live now. So, if yes. you can hear our voices, you can go support Christina's book. And uh, do you want to talk about? Because you mentioned the mini palette, can you explain that and maybe explain 
when this would be coming out and maybe some of the yeah, tiers. Yeah, and it's 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 mysketchingobsession.com. So I, I've okay. got a URL for so it's easier to find it on Kickstarter. Um, my husband's an engineer, so I was seeing on Instagram like a lot of these cute little palettes, and I said, wouldn't it be cool if we'd... My husband keeps getting more... Perhaps as a mechanical engineer, you have the same addiction. So I'm addicted to sketching. He's addicted to 3D printers, and he keeps buying more of them. <laughs> I said, wouldn't it be cool? And so I did a little sketch on something of what I wanted, and they're this small. I mean, they're super tiny. I've got a loaded one here. But, but yeah, so you put you load it with your own paint, and then he made it. Um, he used his engineering superpowers to make it. So this has a clip on it, so you can clip it onto a sketchbook. Okay. But it also is modular, so you can clip this, take this out, and you can also slip this in. It's got a Velcro strap, then like wrap it around your finger as you're painting. So it becomes like a, a like a palette ring. Yeah, it's like a palette ring, and so it it actually stabilizes it a little bit, like when you're drawing. So you have this. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna try to film myself tomorrow when I'm at the zoo using it. And so that way you can kind of, when you, you know, hold the, it kind of, your hand is still a little bit free, but you can kind of paint nice. and then be working on your, I, I tend to work in smaller sketchbooks. I mean, sometimes I'll work in something bigger, but I like to keep something small in my purse. Like I like these little square, probably my favorite are these square handbooks. I don't know if you use these. I like them because they're small. I also like Stillman and Burns books a lot too. Mm -hmm. They're mixed media. Mm -hmm. And so you know, this, you know, I can carry it around the zoo and it makes it easier, you know, so this, whether it's clipped or on my hand, it makes it a lot easier to hold it, you know, because one thing when you're standing up and drawing, like everything starts to fall on the ground and you're dropping things. And so this means it's more attached to you. So with this and a water brush, it makes it a lot easier, like, especially if you're painting in places that they may not necessarily be happy you're painting in. Mm -hmm. um, there's certain museums that get a little bit touchy if you... <laughs> <laughs> So, and if people want to support this, like the the, the pledge starts at uh, $20, right? For a digital version of the book. And then it goes yes, up. Yes, yes. And, and if you want the palette that has, you have to go up to 40, which is still great for a palette and, and a print version of the book, right? Yes, yes. And then signed books are a little higher. And then I have a postcard set. And then uh, some of the higher tiers, you can get a sketch. And then some of them, I'll do like a little ink sketch in the book. Nice. Um, and just just different tiers like that. So, you um, the planned launch for this is March of twenty. Yes, I, we're hoping we're hoping to print it um, the end of January, um, and I think that that should not be a problem. I mean, the book's written and we're in the final editing phase and layout and that sort of thing. I built a little cushion in because of there's been a lot of supply issues with paper and that sort of thing and so I thought it would be better to build out a little extra time in case something happened mishap wise uh, it, and so that's why I put the delivery date of March I was going to put February but then I said it's better if I deliver early if it gets done earlier than to be really late because something strange happens I mean now things are a little bit I am printing it domestically but I think things are a little bit more unsure than they used to be for printing and getting paper. And even this printer said they have paper now, but it's really touch and go with a lot of, like even the big publishers, I don't know if you've been reading mm -hmm. that a lot of the major publishers are having trouble getting paper. Yes. Yeah. I've, the interesting thing with, oh, go on, sorry. No, I, I've heard that because I know people who've had their books delayed just because of that, yeah. I, well, I, it, interestingly, a lot of 
places that make paper started making packaging instead of printing paper. Right. We're all at home ordering our Amazon stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they're all making co- cardboard for Amazon and they're not making paper for books. So, hmm. I, you know, stuff like that's a little bit uncontrollable. I mean, we actually already have the pallets made. I mean, every day Tori's like made more of them. And so we're picking a fair clip on that. But uh, it's the actual printing and, and that sort of thing that I was a little bit concerned about. I, I ultimately th- think it won't be a problem, but that's when you have problems is when you think there won't be a problem. Now, he's worked in the <laughs> toy industry. Does this palette like transform into some other kind of... <laughs> oh, that, that, will be, that will be the 2.0 version. Nice. <laughs> where it will like make, it'll turn into like some sort of robot, like it'll be a transformer and it will jump and, you know, actually be automated. <laughs> so now, that actually would be cool, a robot that, robot palette. I think we've got a product. If the palette can transform into like a pen holder when you're not using it, that would be fun. Oh, that's a neat, you know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting st- innovations that I've noticed lately, like with desks and game ca- tables that they didn't use, like cup holders and, yeah. and that they didn't really do before. And I think it's kind of exciting that now they're thinking more, you know, design wise, because we're in our home so much. How can we make this a space that someone's sitting at a lot? Exactly. And, and so with this book, with like you, you were self-publishing this except for. Yes. So what was that experience like versus going to a publisher? Like, did you intentionally choose to self-publish or was it, how did you get there? I have publisher interest in it. It's been really hard because the publishing landscape has changed so much that it was it was it was hard to de- it's hard to decide and I'm it it still may eventually be in a publisher's hands for like a second printing or something like that. I think that it it just seemed to make more sense to do it this way and have a little bit more control over what I wanted it to be. And that sort of thing. And I think there's never been a time until now that you could actually do your own projects like this on your own. Um, publishing is, and I, perhaps other people that are doing a lot of publishing have talked about this a little bit too on your show, has really changed. Um, when I first got into it, it was extremely taboo to self-publish. I mean, that's something, And but since I was a big comics fan, I never understood the tam- taboo because most comics are self-published. People kind of put their own zine together. It's not that unusual for somebody to do a graphic novel and then it be picked up by a big major publisher. And so I never understood why it was taboo, but like particularly in children's publishing, it was considered vanity publishing and you know, no one should ever do that. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, in the past maybe five years, so many people have been laid off that worked at major publishers that their major freelance business is edit freelance editing and design for people that are doing their own books. So a lot of people have really changed their tune because the market has completely changed. And there aren't that many bookstores anymore. I mean, like most of them, I mean, now that there's, you know, no borders closed and there's fewer Barnes and Nobles and really the way people are buying books is online or reading ebooks and so the way people consume these products has changed a lot and so I felt like it was made more sense and you know I'm seeing more and more people like doing children's books and I think it's going to be kind of more like comics where big publishers will be more curators than 
um, perhaps doing as much original content because in the past they lost a lot of money on original content because usually you have your Stephen King that pays for all the you know other stuff that they experiment on and ultimately gets warehoused and thrown away and you know print on demand's gotten a lot better and you know the the way that people get a hold of different media is a lot different and I think that that's a long-winded way of saying I think that it works a little bit better I can reach the market of people that would buy this book easier you know probably the big place people buy art books is probably retail like at Michael's or you know some of the bookstores and that's sort of, but a lot of that stuff like I think even I we noticed when we were working on this book that it seemed like even Michael's wasn't carrying as many SKUs of art books mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it just it just seems like it's and also one thing we haven't really discussed is I've been starting a small travel business we went to Romania in June um, and my friend Ioana and I are starting to do travel sketch trips where we take sketchers and we uh, draw and so I was going to use these books as part of that and palettes and and stuff like that I'm a bit of a travel addict too and so I've been trying to think how can I mix all of my hobbies into one thing right <laughs> and have your it's kind of like it's like George Costanza in the Seinfeld right. how do I mix all of my hobbies together right. and then have your <laughs> husband tag along to print out the palettes right so. exactly yeah. exactly yeah. Uh, but you know so I was thinking of you know so it's it's not just merely publishing for that purpose but also you know as as part of this sideline travel thing I hope to eventually do more of we're, we're just getting into it uh the pandemic kind of delayed it a little while well that's cool that you're doing that i think that's a, a lot of people will find that an interesting reason to travel right is to go and create and draw and, mm-hmm. and paint I think. it's happening more and more yeah there's a couple of different groups that do it and um i think that there's an interest in that yeah i mean i've i've seen you know paul Heaston and and um i think samantha dion baker did one um mm-hmm. i think gail k baker did one as well so i think i'm seeing these and the couple of, des- of the destinations like going to uh, romania would be kind of cool but i look at the destinations i'm thinking wow i, I really want to go there oh it's a really neat place um you know transylvania is beautiful it's sort of it's sort of like when everybody was going to Prague and everybody said how, and Prague is wonderful, but it got really, you know, became so hot that it became kind of more expensive and, and more touristy. I mean, it's still worth visiting, especially if you love Mucha. Um, You know, you can see all the Mucha museums, but it, this has a lot of, there's a lot of really great artists in Romania too. The urban sketchers there were incredible and we sketched with them a couple days and they were very welcoming and very friendly. And the, Transylvania is it has all the castles and all these this old world architecture but it's not really traveled to that much uh I think it's I think that we have a short amount of time I think it could become a very popular tourist destination because it is it has so much going for it but it's not it's kind of slightly undiscovered and I think what's going to happen is people will discover it more and more and then it will become really popular yeah as these things do, because it, it just it it's just such a neat place. It, it's kind of walking into a fairy tale, like the Saxon villages and the fortified churches and the painted churches and all the different things are so exciting. 
you know, it's a place where I think it's an Eastern Orthodox thing. They have these painted churches that look like comic books on the outside. And they're making new ones, too. Like, they even credit the artists. And it's these amazing, I mean, I guess you think about back in the Middle Ages, it was sort of like your adventure film. Like, it's almost like panels of a comic book on the inside of these churches. And it's action. It's all the saints being killed in horrible ways. And, you know, back then, people probably were like, it's like watching a John Woo movie or something. It's all these people in battles and stuff. And I was thinking that was probably a pretty cool career being a medieval artist, you know, painting these things. (laughs) It was funny because I was watching uh, Everybody Feed Phil, I think it's called, on Netflix. And and he was in Croatia. And as soon as I saw... Oh, yeah, that's beautiful, too. I was like, oh, my, I have to go there and just... I was telling my wife, I'm just going to have to sit down and just paint all day. I'm sorry. Like, it's just... (laughs) It's just beautiful. Walk a few steps, have a coffee and some kind of pastry, and then do it again. And yeah. Well, that's always the hardest thing when, when you're traveling is when you're with family, they don't necessarily want to draw with you or watch you draw yes. <laughs> or even go to art museums. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times when I've traveled in the past, I end up having to go out on my own to sketch or, and you know, it's sort of your family's like, well, how much time do you need? Like is 20 minutes enough, half an hour, <laughs> right. you know, and you're thinking, oh, well, I'll meet you tonight. You. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I may be able to meet and, you for lunch, but that may be cut it tight. Yeah, I know, and 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 so that's one of the reasons I think more people are doing trips with sketching, is because there uh, is a is a desire to be able to do. And that's my friend Amy who did the Taos trip that I was talking about that I went to in 2012. You know, you basically sit in your work in your journal and look at art, and it's sort of we went to when we went to Guatemala in. Um, 2018 I think it was it was just incredible we were there during Lent so they have the procession and everybody's carrying these icons through the street and it was just such an incredible sketching experience Hmm. and I think more and more people are doing these sorts of things that's cool so with the book you have a kickstarter that started and you're halfway Mm -hmm. there already Uh, but people have (laughs) They have until uh, November 22nd. So if you are listening to me and you can hear me and it is not past November 22nd, 2022, you can uh, back this wonderful book, wonderful project. Yes, please do. It's it's been it's been a labor of love, but it's been really fun putting it together. And I hope everybody finds it interesting. You know, we're, we're definitely trying to make it interesting. 30 years in the making right? Uh, yes, exactly. That's, that's what it is. I, and I, I was toying around what day to make it. I have a book festival that's like just a couple of days before. So I said, I need to have the book festival in it, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. It looks incredible. I, I, oh, thank you. I wish you success on this. I know that oh, thanks uh, so much. the listeners will, will jump on board because I just, I, I love this story. Uh, I love the book and I love the little palette. And I know. <laughs> I'm anxious to see this fully funded. So uh, I encourage people to check it out. This is cool. Oh, thank you so much. And I really enjoyed talking to you. I mean, we could probably talk for hours more. I mean, I love geeking out on this kind of thing. Absolutely. But before I let you go, um, I, uh-huh. I want to, and before I ask you for, for homework, I have an odd question for you. And I'm curious what your response will be. What would your friends give you an award for? I think they would probably give me an award for being somewhat relentless. I talk people into things that they wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> uh, my husband always describes me as a bad influence on people, but I, I tend to be, he always jokes that I have, instead of an angel and devil on my shoulder, I have two devils that egg each other on. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> 
And so I think most people think I have too much energy. Hmm. I think I think it's just one of those things. I have a lot of things that I'm really into. Right. And, you know, it's kind of like, what do you decide to do? So there's no doubt the book will be done. <laughs> there we yes. go. That's insurance. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the, the book will be done. <laughs> So I, I always get to the point of asking for homework because I love being able to give the listeners something to take away with them that they can try. So I'm wondering, Christina, as a matter of homework, what would you recommend uh, the listener try? You know, I, I was thinking what might be fun is one of the, the and, and this exercise will be in the book too, is kind of, it, it's a beginning of sort of sequential storytelling, but timing yourself. I would, and a lot of times I just draw like, bo- you can draw boxes in your sketchbook, like sketch something that happened to you today, you know, but make it sequential instead of one panel, do it like in three panels and time it like five minutes, just draw in each panel for five minutes and time yourself. Like I use my Apple clock all the time to when I'm, and and see what you come up with. I mean, you might decide to finish it later, but I, I find that like when you do something like that, it, it is, is a kind of raw drawing that is you end up, getting more out of than you thought you would. I like that idea. Yeah, like if you had an experience today talking to someone and it was just ended up being a, a interesting situation. I had my students do it recently and it, it was kind of funny because it was all stuff about getting ready for school. Right. <laughs> like I, I you, you say that I'm immediately thinking what if I know what I could do for today. And it's so it's that's a really because storytelling is such an important part of, of what mm-hmm. we do, whether it's one static image, um, because I, I love seeing those art pieces. And I've said this to artists that come on, you know, when I look at someone's art and I can I can visualize what happens next and what happened just before it. I feel like mm-hmm. I feel more complete. I feel like that speaks to me versus something where I, I'm unclear about what, what was before or after. Like, I, I love the, there's a sense of action. There's a, there's a sense of, mm-hmm. of coming from and going to. And mm-hmm. uh, I love this idea of, of three panels and just playing with that idea. Yeah, like you have a setup and then you have something that kind of is an action and then you have the reaction. Right. So, you know, it would be like somebody, you're walking and then you flip on a, slip on a banana peel and then you're lying on the ground or something like that it's it's sort of a very fundamental of animation sort of thing but it's it's kind of an interesting journaling uh way to explain you know things that have happened that's a good idea i mean it's almost like an old star trek next generation episode right where you've got the conflict and 20 (laughs) minutes in and then 20 minutes exactly Yeah, yeah, it's it's a story beat kind of <laughs> exactly, and, and I thought that would be something really fun. Yeah. I mean, because I doodle a lot um, in my sketchbook. Also, when I'm doing um, either comics or if I'm doing uh, books, you know, kind of figuring out thumbnails of what the pages look like, and that is always one of the biggest struck- struggles when working with students. And I think it, people are never again prepared to do a lot you end up having to do a lot of art and what I mean by that is like thumbnailing is so important to being able to do a good composition of something and a lot of and a lot of people tend to skip over that and then and that that's where illustration really melds with design because you have to be willing to really look at different design solutions of each spread and the whole story and there's a lot of effort you have to put into that that is kind of di- apart from like 
obviously there's the designing of characters and designing the sets and I mean a lot of stuff like that is what makes you know illustrating a book or comic book difficult on top of just the art it's you have to design everything that's in there yeah and I think that's that's what I like about this approach because you see so many artists where they will you know you'll see the end piece and then they'll show like on Instagram mm-hmm. and once again I love it or hate it it's there <laughs> but they'll show on Instagram that they did like six sketches uh, really quick sketches of, of this to try to figure out the composition. And I really like your idea because it, it hits home. It's easy to find an event or something that has a that has three stages to it. And mm-hmm. it, it gets us into that mindset of doing something really simple with five minutes each. Uh, I I think it's brilliant. I'm going to have to do this. Oh, good. I, I, I hope that, I hope everybody has fun with it. And, and that explains also kind of why I love sketching so much because, you know, we were talking about drawing animals and stuff, like going to the zoo. It's kind of low stakes just drawing animals and that sort of thing. But when you're doing an animal book that's in a special habitat, you start drawing plants and you're like, well, would these plants be here? Then you have to do do this internet search. Well, what plants would be there? And, you know, over the years, like different books that I've worked on, you know, you're talking to scientists that work on this stuff and saying, would this really be there? Like there was, there's a, my friend Iwana, who I do the Romania trips with, I did a, a look and find book and I did a picture of Madagascar and I had pictures of vanilla plants because that's where most of the vanilla is grown in the world. And she said, well, vanilla is not indigenous to Madagascar. So we kind of got an argument about, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it, and so there's a lot of stuff as an illustrator you have to think about whenever you're doing any kind of composition, mm-hmm. you know, would this really be here, you know, for story reasons or for ecological reasons, if you're doing like a book on the rainforest, which is, you know, Sloth's Treehouse Inn that just came out. And, you know, th- so there's a lot of stuff that has to be worked out above and beyond like the basic composition and stuff to make sure that it's accurate whereas when you're out sketching you don't really care you just draw whatever's there and yeah yeah exactly (laughs) it's it's just it's just relaxing and it's just fun and you get to play and not say oh my gosh this plant would never be here (laughs) (laughs) or would this animal be here these animals wouldn't be together (laughs) that's right i I had another artist on here who uh, works on birds and he was saying the same thing that he saw two birds that should never ever be together and uh Mm -hmm. yeah very good point I wanted to thank you. Like I, I'm sure we could go on for a couple more hours um, because it's it's so enjoyable speaking to you. You've got so such a kind of a wealth of experience in illustration, in storytelling, in in, in drawing, and creating both analog and digital. And now with the book, um, I just loved this conversation. And if people wanted to get to know you more, uh, where can we direct people to find you? Instagram's probably best, uh, which is CSW Yellowcat, which is Y E L. L-O-K-A-T and there's a big explanation. I, I wish I'd used Christina Wald instead but it was a time when you were first getting on all these platforms and I told you not to use your name Yes. and it's 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 like why didn't I just use my name but you, you know you remember that time it was yep. like and then mm-hmm. now people use their name and but uh, Facebook too I mean you can follow me on, on Facebook and Twitter you know all the usual places um, I try to update my blog but i'm much slower about that yeah you have a great blog by the way i'm like oh thank you even though it's you say you're slower i was flipping through it and i just loved it so yeah i love oh thanks i love when artists do that yeah (laughs) and then uh, and then we'll obviously include a link directly to your kickstarter as well. okay great great thank you very much yeah so this has been great i i wish you luck with everything that you're doing especially the kickstarter And, oh, uh, thanks. I mean, this is probably the craziest thing I've ever do, done doing a book. Not so much because of the art, but the writing part of it has been probably the hardest thing. Right. 
because it's that's not the muscle I use the most. I'll be curious. I'd love to touch base with you and, and you know, maybe six months and, and re, you know, reflect on the book and find out if there's a volume two coming. Like, it would just be good to <laughs> kind of talk through that a bit and see how that went. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Christina. This has been uh, fantastic. And uh, I encourage everyone to check out the show notes as they normally do. And uh, I, um, once again, wish you all the best with this oh, and look you. forward to uh, to seeing this book in uh, in the spring of next year so. Thank you again. Oh, great. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Christina and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 87. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 